All right, so we are still considering the question of how to get along with fellow believers when we disagree on non-essentials, and the principle that we're looking at today from Romans 14, uh, verse 13 is, 13, actually 13 through 22, that's the section that we're drawing the principle, is walk in love. Love should be the controlling principle when we are engaged with one another over disagreements about non-essential matters. Love will be the controlling. Love must be the controlling principle. And we'll actually see, interestingly enough, that uh, Paul is going to rate love higher than knowledge in 1 Corinthians 8 when it comes to discerning these issues and navigating these issues with one another. So let's look at Romans 14 again. He says in verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment, look down on on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So rather than despising someone because of their particular different view, instead decide that you will never, and that language is strong, to never put a stumbling block in front of someone. A stumbling block is something that causes another person to sin or to violate their conscience. And so Paul's instruction to us right now in the spirit of love for our fellow brothers and sisters is to determine today, make it a non-negotiable in your Christian life, that you will never put a stumbling block in the way of another brother or sister in the Lord. That you'd be willing to give up whatever legitimate right that you have in, for the sake of your brother and sister. He says, never. And then he goes on to talk about how he is persuaded that in the Lord Jesus nothing, nothing is unclean in of itself, but it is unclean for the person who thinks it unclean, even though they're, they're uh, not seeing things accurately. Nevertheless, it is unclean for them. And so you don't want to put a stumbling block in their way. You don't want to force them to violate their conscience. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You've now elevated your personal desires, personal interests, personal rights above that of your, the, the conscience and the spiritual health of your brother or sister, and that shows that you're no longer walking in love. You're walking in selfishness, which is the exact opposite of Christianity, right? Based on what Christ has done on our behalf, in the work that he has done and how he laid down his life, not only as our sacrifice, but as our example, we are to walk in love, meaning we are to lay down ourselves for our brothers and sisters. And you find as you do that, there is blessing in that. There is true spiritual blessing in that. There's satisfaction in the Lord. There's joy in the Lord as you lay down your life for uh, your fellow brothers and sisters by determining that you would rather give up something than to put a stumbling block before one, another Christian. But uh, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. We'll come back to that in a moment, but I want us to turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because Paul addresses the similar kind of situation, this idea of the strong and the weak, this idea of having so-called knowledge, and then using that knowledge, not in a way that builds up your brother and sister in the Lord, but actually tramples on their conscience. 
So the situation in Corinth is they wrote Paul with several questions, several issues that they wanted addressed, and this is one of them, namely food being offered to idols. And so he's going to address this issue, and he's, we're going to be able to draw out of this uh, response of Paul's several principles about how to engage with one another when you have stronger or weaker consciences on a given issue. So he says this, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, this is the way Paul addresses, okay, you, I answered one question that you asked, now we're moving on to the next question. The next question is, is food offered to idols? We know that all of us possess knowledge. Now in some of your Bibles, it may have that phrase, all of us possess knowledge, in quotes. Anybody have that? The ESV has it? Okay. That's because in, in, uh, translators believe that this was a phrase that they were using that Paul is repeating back. Okay. We all possess knowledge. This is something that they were saying. Likely the strong were saying, hey, we all possess knowledge. We all know idol isn't anything. Come on, you weak people. Get with the program. Okay. We all possess knowledge. But Paul turns that back on them because he sees immediately that they're not using their knowledge correctly. This knowledge you speak of puffs up. Okay? So, and then he says, and then he goes on to say, but love builds up. What does he mean here? He means that they're using their knowledge in a way that is devoid of love. It's a knowledge that trumps love. It's a knowledge that's more important. This certain kind of knowledge, being able to act on this knowledge, is more important than loving their brother and sister. And Paul's going to make love here the controlling principle of how they are to conduct themselves among their uh, spiritual siblings. This knowledge, the way you're wielding it, it puffs up. Love, or I should say knowledge devoid of love, puffs up. It just, that's, an ax that's axiomatic. If you have knowledge, even knowledge of God, believe it or not, devoid of love for God and devoid of love for your brother and sister, devoid of love for your neighbor, it will puff you up. It will make you arrogant. It will cause you to elevate your rights and your desires and your interests above the spiritual good of your spiritual siblings. It just will. It's just axiomatic. Okay? And that's what he's getting at here. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He says in verse 2, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And this is kind of confusing on the face of it, but following it in the context, what does he mean? The, the word actually, that he knows something, that word therefore knows is actually in the perfect, giving the idea that what was happening here is, or what Paul is is correcting here is this idea that you have arrived at perfect knowledge. Anyone who believes he's arrived at perfect knowledge, primarily in, in knowledge that's devoid of love, but you, you think you've arrived at perfect knowledge, then you don't really know how you should know. You, you're not really fully uh, understanding the way of Christ at this point. That you have somehow think you have arrived at uh, knowing something, arrived at perfect knowledge, and your, your knowledge is not coupled with love, you don't really understand God or your walk with the Lord or, or how Christianity should work. And then he adds, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now that is an interesting phrase, and it's actually um, hard to actually know the, 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 the words of the original text at this point. It could possibly say, but if anybody loves, he is known or he knows and the word God may not have been in the original uh, text. It's, it's actually hard to tell, but actually, if, if it is the case, but if anyone loves, uh, he knows, it's, if that is the way that it's, it's supposed to read, then it actually fits with exactly what he just previously said. 
quite well. But I don't think, I, even so, I think if, it's, if it is, but if anyone loves God, if that is the original text, he is known by God, I think it still fits. Because what he is saying is that the primary driving, controlling principle of all of this is love. Love for God and love for your spiritual siblings, which are, he will say later, connected. Watch what he says in verse 11. In 12, he says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So love for God and love for your spiritual siblings is interconnected. You can't separate the two. If you sin against, if you cause another one to sin against their conscience, you are not just sinning against that person. Who are you actually sinning against, ultimately? It's a direct sin against Christ, actually. And if you love God, then you are not only displaying that you are known by God, but that you are going to be able to navigate these issues of knowledge and of weak and of strong in a way that truly benefits your spiritual siblings. So love is, the, what we need to take away here in verses 1 through 3 is that love is the controlling principle. Love. And that may not sound so sophisticated for us, uh, for those who are drawn to intellectual argument and, and, and strong debate and this kind of thing, to, to read and to learn from Paul here and in Romans 14 that love is the controlling principle. Love actually guides the way we will wield our knowledge of the truth, particularly in areas of disputable matters, issues of conscience. In verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. This is likely what they were saying, the strong were saying, trying to make their case. Listen, we know that there is only one God, and we know that an idol is nothing. And then he goes on to agree with that, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, meaning there are, all, are a lot of religions out there, a lot of claims to deity, right? We, we know that. That's just, a, that's just an empirical fact. Yet, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom, all things are, uh, from, who are, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he is acknowledging, yes, we are monotheists, there's one God the Father, there's one Lord Jesus Christ, they are equal in their essence, as he says here, as both being creator. He says, from whom are all things, that's namely the Father, and we exist through him, and then we exist through the Son, and he created all things, and so you have this one being, uh, two persons, he, obviously Paul believes in a trinity, but here is emphasizing the two persons, the, the Father and the Son, and he is saying, yes, I agree, there is one God, there is there are no, there are so-called gods and lords out there, but they're not, they don't have a real existence. So he's agreeing with them. However, in verse 7, he says, not all possess this knowledge. So the strong are, are making this claim, like, come on, guys, we all know that God is one and an idol doesn't have a real existence, right? Don't you get, don't you get that? Don't you got, I mean, we should all know that kind of thing. And Paul is saying, when it comes to a conscience that's been immersed in pagan idolatry all of their life and then they come to Christ, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. 
However, not all possess this knowledge. What does he mean by that? But some, though, uh, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. They can't make that distinction yet in their minds. Not yet, at least, right? Hopefully the conscience will be trained over time, and they will see that an idol, uh, that, that food offered to idols isn't being really offered to an idol because an idol doesn't have really any true existence. But right now, at this point in their life, given their background, they can't make those fine distinctions. And so they are, their, their conscience is, is bothered. So they believe that uh, if they were to eat food that was offered to an idol, they are, they are eating, they are, they are violating uh, their worship of the one true God. They are, uh, they are actually eating food that has been offered to an idol, which does have some real existence. And so has somehow... Uh, change the shape or the, the, the essence of the food that they are eating. It has a spiritual effect on the very food that they are eating. This is, this is how their conscience would have been informed. So that this, this knowledge of God being one, yes, there would have been agreement about that. They're Christians, but there's just hard for them to make this clear distinction between God being one and the idol having no true existence. They thought the idols still did, it seems, have some kind of existence, and they just couldn't make these distinctions in their own mind. So what happens? If they eat meat that has been offered to an idol, though that idol is nothing, forget about it. Even if they, but if they eat it, then they are, their conscience is defiled. They believe they are committing idolatry and sinning against God, and therefore they can't do it. And their, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But then Paul goes on to make a pretty interesting statement here. He says, um, Food will not commend us to God. So Paul is agreeing with the strong, okay, that, that food, is, food is food. Okay, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. He'll go on to say that later. But the, the food is just food. When, when it's offered to an idol or, when it, or not, it, it doesn't change. It doesn't change in its essence. It doesn't become infused spiritually with some sort of malicious spiritual content. No, it's just it's, it's meat before and after it's sacrificed. Nothing at all has changed in the universe. The meat is the meat, and you can eat it, right? However, Paul's point here, and he'll say it again in Romans 14, is that food is not nearly the most important thing in Christianity. Not even close. In fact, what you eat does not commend you to God one way or the other. God does not care if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or if you eat meat. He doesn't care in terms of what you eat. He's more concerned about the why and the how. But he's, he's, in terms of the what, all foods have been declared clean, right? Food will not commend us to God. But watch how he flips it on the strong. We are no worse off if we do not eat. In other words, if, if the, the person with the weak conscience says, I don't want to eat that meat, they're not worse off. God does not look at them and be like, oh, you weak sauce Christian. No, they're not worse off at all. They're not commended one way or the other. So he actually flips the argument on the strong. He's like, they, the, the weak choosing not to eat, they're not sinning and they're not worse off. Their life, their spiritual life is not worse off. They're not commanded to eat meat, right? So they're not worse off. And then he says, and, we're, and we are no better off if we do. So guess what, strong people? You think you're spiritually superior by eating the meat? Nope. You are no more righteous before you eat the meat than when after you eat the meat. You are no more commended to God before you eat the meat than after you meet the eat. Food does not commend us to God. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. 
Okay? But, and then now, again, addressing the strong again, but take care. This is what you should be concerned about. The food's not commending you to God. Do not think for a moment, and you could flip it around because, you know, veganism and vegetarianism is kind of in vogue today. Don't flip it around and think that that commends you to God either. And I know people who speak like that, thinking that that is the pure and holy way. It's not. It's not. God, that food, one way or the other, doesn't commend you to God. What, what, you, what you avoid and what you choose to eat doesn't commend you to God. That's not what commends you to God. But, now placing it on the strong, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So whatever you do in terms of your eating, don't allow what you're doing to become a stumbling block or a cause of sin for the weak person. So that your eating of the meat in this case uh, causes them to, that has been sacrificed to idols, causes them to be encouraged to eat that meat and then sin against their conscience. So that is the same as his principle. Is that let's, let's determine now, we, whatever we'll do, love compels us to never set a stumbling block before another brother or sister. Verse 10 and following, he's going to offer the scenario of eating in an uh, idol's temple. He says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, remember, hey, I have knowledge, remember, idol's nothing, God is one, we got that. So I can go into an idol's temple and I can actually eat the food offered to idols. What is going on here? Well, from what we can tell, it's these, there were, like in Corinth, for example, you would have had these idol temples kind of all over the place, right? And idol worship going on and you would have these ceremonies and these were almost kind of local restaurants, you might say. It was kind of the, the uh, type of restaurants, if, if you could call them that, at the time. And so there, there were quite a few of them, and you would have a, a little ceremony, and then you would have the meal. And basically, after the ceremony is done, there's really nothing distinctively pagan about it. You just, there's the ceremony, the offering to the, uh, the idols, the, moot, the, the meat that was offered is now uh, distributed among the people, and you pay for it, and so on. And so really, past that point, there's nothing truly distinctively pagan about it. You just, there's the ceremony, and then you're eating among your friends. And apparently at this time, there were Christians who were strong, said, hey, we have, or claimed to be strong, say, hey, we have knowledge. That idol in there, when we go to that idol uh, ceremony, he's not even real. It's not a big deal. Come on, right? And so we can go in and we can eat and we can hang out with our friends and have a good meal, right? Paul, now the question is, is Paul saying that's okay? We'll see in a moment whether or not he thinks that's okay. But his point right here is, is, exhorting the strong to consider how their actions will lead the weak to defile their conscience. And he says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So we'll get to 11 and, and word destroyed there, uh, what that means in a moment. But Paul's point is simply to, to exhort the strong to say, listen, think about what you're doing here. You claim to have this right. You claim that your knowledge enables you to go into an idol's temple to eat the food. And technically speaking, yes, that meat is not spiritually tainted. You can eat it in that sense. But just think about your weak brother who, who sees or learns, or in this case, he sees you, sees you doing that. And now your right that you're exercising actually is going to lead that weak brother to now 
violate his conscience, seeing like, oh, I guess it's okay to, to eat um, uh, meat offered to idols like this, but idols are not, uh, but I think an idol kind of has some real existence. And then Paul's basically saying they're going to be led to partake in something that violates their conscience. So he's exhorting the strong to be like, think about what you're doing. It's not just a matter of saying, I have knowledge, therefore I'm, I can do this thing. What must that knowledge be coupled with? Love for your brethren. Right? Love is the controlling principle. If his conscience is weak, he's going to eat food offered to idols, and then by your knowledge, knowledge that's apparently not coupled with love, something uh, desperate is going to happen to this person, namely, he is going to be destroyed. Now, this is where things get a little challenging. Well, this, I, I'll be honest, this whole passage is challenging. But uh, this is where things get particularly challenging because he says this, your knowledge could potentially destroy this weak brother, the one for whom Christ has died. You're thinking, well, that sounds bad, but I'm still not seeing the problem. The problem is, is this word destroyed means predominantly in the New Testament, eternal damnation, eternal perishing. So, how can it be that you could potentially, by your wielding of unloving knowledge, destroy a brother for whom Christ has died? Because how can you send to eternal perishing a brother for whom Christ has already died? Do you guys see the problem? It, it, it is kind of a problem, exegetically. I mean, it's, uh, Paul, Paul, at the very least, we can say this. This is something you can take home. Paul, at the very least, is saying you will do severe damage to your brother or sister in the Lord if you set a stumbling block before them that will cause them to violate their conscience. The conscience is a very delicate, uh, finely calibrated instrument that can be easily damaged. Easily damaged. I mean, it's just... It's a, you guys work, some of you guys work in, in fields where you have very finely calibrated instruments. Instruments that are small, but upwards of two to three to four to five hundred thousand dollars, right? These finely crafted, uh, highly calibrated instruments. And I, I think that's similar to what the conscience is like. It's very delicate. And so it can't be smashed, it can't be violated. And because if it is damaged, it's, it starts to spin you off in, 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 a, in a way that you're unable to discern what is truly right and truly wrong. And Paul says that that leads you to make a shipwreck of your faith. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I believe. So at the very least, we can say this. The setting of the stumbling block before another brother or sister is really serious business. Okay, and we want to resolve out of love to never do that. So let's try to resolve here what, what Paul is saying. What is this destroying? All right. I've already said it. The word is used predominantly in the New Testament to refer to physical and eternal death. To sin against your conscience can endanger your eternal destiny. That's what I take Paul's language here to mean. Okay can endanger your eternal destiny. As we'll see in the last point that he makes in Romans 14, the principle for every Christian is to never personally violate your own conscience. 
Here he's talking about putting a stumbling block before another brother or sister's conscience. But how can he say, if that is the case, and that's how I take it, how can he say that the brother for whom Christ has died can be destroyed? Because if Christ has died for that person and paid for their sins and they've been forgiven of their sins, how can they be destroyed? Well, one solution is that this statement carries the connotation of severe damage but not eternal death, okay? Or this word here. Um, this is probably not the best way to take it because that's not the way Paul uses it anywhere else. He uses it ref with reference to eternal death. But it is a possible, uh, it is possible, a possible translation, and some take it. The, one, the view that I take is that Paul is speaking of what appears to be the case, right? If they have professed faith in Christ, they appear to be one for whom Christ has died, right? I look out across to you guys. You've all professed faith in Christ. I believe that you are one for whom Christ has died. And believing that you are one for whom Christ has died and that Christ has shed his blood for you and Christ loves you, how audacious would it be for me to do something that might potentially destroy you, the one for whom Christ has died? So Paul is talking here about appearances because ultimately we can't know ultimately uh, whether or not a person is a believer. We have not been given access into the the heart of somebody. And what uh, proves ultimately that a person is a believer is that they persevere to the end. And so what Paul may mean here is that this has to do with appearances and that a person uh, for whom Christ has died, it, it, or a person who has professed faith in Christ is someone, uh, it appears that Christ has died for, and therefore love compels us to not put a stumbling block before them. But if eventually someone who has professed faith in Christ departs from the faith and rejects Christ altogether, then they are proving that they may have not truly believed in the first, in the first place. Okay? So I take this to be the position that Paul is speaking in terms of appearances. And um, this is the, the brother for whom Christ has died is, is a way of speaking of how we think of other professing believers. If, you're, if you've professed faith in Christ then I assume that you are someone for whom Christ has died, because that's what your profession of faith means. Yes? That, that problem is assuming, uh, I don't want to open a can of worms here, but um, that's assuming that we believe in limited atonement? I don't believe in limited atonement. I hate the word limited. I believe in definite atonement. Yeah. Okay. Particular redemption. I like particular redemption, too. So, um, but I prefer definite atonement. But anyways... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what James is getting at is if you take the view that Christ died for all, um, meaning that he, uh, uh, his, his death, even as a definite atonement guy, it's hard for me to, to say it in a way that's accurate. Gen general, if you believe that Christ died for all and that Christ's atonement is for all, um, this passage doesn't really bother you because what you're simply saying is that um, this person who has, is destroyed was a person for whom Christ has died because everyone is, Christ has died for everyone, but their ultimate falling away and being destroyed doesn't undermine the idea that Christ has died for this person because Christ has died for all. Okay? 
it causes problems for those who believe that Christ has died uh, specifically for his people and that his atonement is effective only for his people, only for those who believe. So it just depends on where you, you fall. Now, I personally believe in definite atonement, meaning that when Christ died, he died for his people. He atoned only for his people. Because the question is, is in what way did, if he died for everyone, in what way did he die for them? And if you say, well, he atoned for their sin. Well, if he atoned for their sin, why is it that they then, uh, if they uh, fall away and go to hell, how is it that he paid for their sin? Because now they are paying for their sin for all eternity. So I see a lot of problems theologically with general, what's called general atonement or uh, general redemption. And uh, I particularly, I take the definite atonement because I believe it's theologically sound, but also because I think a lot of texts support it in the New Testament. So that's why we're having to work through the, the conundrum here. Because how, how could Paul say, who I believe believes, who argues particular redemption or definite atonement, how could he say that you could sin against someone in such a way to destroy them, this one for whom Christ has died? And I think the solution is to see that Paul's talking uh, by way of, a, of appearance here. But thank you for bringing that up, James. So that the thrust of Paul's argument here is to, to build in the minds of believers how serious this issue is. That's the takeaway. That's why love is the controlling principle here. That we should almost be willing to, I mean, he talks about the laying side of rights. We should be, we should be willing uh, to lay aside any side, kind of right if we know it will, uh, if exercising that right will harm the, the, our brother and sister spiritually. Yeah, Albert, did you have a question? When I say uh, it's a matter of appearances, I don't mean that Paul is designating a certain group that only appear to be believers. Ultimately, because I'm not God, everyone who professes faith only appears to be a believer. Even, I mean, you make a credible profession of faith, I believe you're a Christian, I believe you're born again, I believe you're regenerate, but ultimately... I can't know beyond what appearances give me. So I don't think he's making uh, two different categories here. I think he is speaking to the strong, and he is saying, um, you need to act in love so as not to put a stumbling block before your weak brother and so destroy them because they have made a profession of faith and therefore they appear to be one for whom Christ has died, and that should compel your love for them. He's not saying that the weak or that there's this that they're, the weak are merely they merely appear to be believers, but that to you, because of their profession of faith, um, you would do assume that they are believers and that they appear to be as such. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but yeah, I'll let you follow up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hormones. Yes. So there's a potential destruction for anyone that you're interacting with. I think so. Yes. I think that's what he's saying. Because you do, because it's your perseverance in the faith that demonst- ultimately demonstrates that you are a true believer. But he's not coming from that really that angle. He's coming from the angle of the way I think you just last said it, which was really good. He's coming at the angle of, yes, you're putting a stumbling block before any believer, any professing believer, could potentially be very destructive. So he uses this, this strong language of, that he uses elsewhere to refer to eternal destruction. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's why I mean he's not coming at it from that angle. And we, we need to be careful that we don't load in theology from other texts into what he's saying here. He's really trying to press the home how serious it is. Say that again, James. Because I think, I, think, I think what you guys are saying is exactly right. Because he's not, he is wanting to press upon us how serious this is. And... Uh, the response of the strong cannot be, oh, well, you won't fall away if you're a true believer. Like, that, that's the wrong uh, attitude. That actually probably, you know what that is? That's knowledge that puffs up. You're taking some theology, theological knowledge and be like, well, true believers can't fall away, so I can do this. That's not the way, that's not the angle Paul comes at it. And we have, see, this is where, we have to be willing to give each text its full voice because um, this is starting to kind of dislodge even some of our preconceived ideas about uh, the way Paul will talk about things like eternal security and our perseverance in the faith and so on. But I think your point is exactly right. The response isn't, ah, no one, true Christians can't fall away from the faith, so I, I don't really have to worry about this. No, every believer that you are in contact with is someone that you need to care for in a way that you're not violating their conscience and so destroying them, this brother for whom Christ has died. So. That's the worst case scenario, right? You're going to do severe damage. At the very least. So we can say this. So you guys are still trying to put all these things together in your mind. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Some of this is pretty... Uh, some rigorous theology. I get that. At the very, very least, we know that he is saying that you can severely damage a brother or sister in the Lord by putting a stumbling block before them, and therefore, out of love, we should be compelled to never, ever do that. At the very least, that is the principle you can take home, put in your pocket, we got that, and, and go home and apply that. It will cause severe damage, and you don't want to cause severe damage to your brother and sister in the Lord. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about this. Listen, my perseverance in the faith and your perseverance in the faith is not an individual project. It's a group project. It's a community project. We do this together. We watch out for one another together. Uh, This is Hebrews chapter 3. When we start to see unbelief creep in, we exhort, we encourage, we admonish. When you see unbelief creep into my life, you exhort and encourage and admonish. If I start to drift away from my my family in the church, you come and grab me by the scruff of the neck, you slap me around, and you say, you say, 
repent and believe and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? It's a community project, and that's the way Paul is talking about here. We care for one another, and one of the primary ways we do that is being careful about each other's consciences. It's one of the reasons why it was, by God's grace, uh, during COVID, why the, the elders were able to wrestle with one another. We all were, we had a spectrum of disagreement and agreement on COVID regulations and masking and vaccinations and all that stuff, and we, we wrestled about it. But we also, as we were wrestling, we wanted to be very sensitive to each kind of conscience in the congregation because we know how important that is, that no one should be exhorted to violate their conscience, that people need to be able to worship in a good conscience. And so we tried to make every single possible accommodation for people at CBC. And by God's grace, he, he, he had established this in his providence, he established this elder team with a different spectrum of, or a spectrum of different consciences on the issue. So we wrestled over it, and we were able to implement uh, protocols that allowed for all kinds of different consciences on this issue to attend worship, and we never closed down. Which I think is one of the reasons why CBC, in terms of it, just overall, most of the church, we still have some who are, are still uncomfortable with coming, but that's very, very few. And by and large, this church has stayed very united, actually, even though we had many different consciences uh, on this issue. So that's the controlling principle, love. Love for your brother and sister. And that should be what drives the knowledge and how you use knowledge. Um, and that's why he closes it up. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now just think of that statement. Meat was a, was a uh, delicacy. Meat was, uh, I mean, they, they definitely had access to it. It's not nearly as abundant as it is now. I mean, we are just inundated with, with meat uh, as, a, as, a, as, Western, uh, as a Western culture. But oh, even, I mean, just broadly throughout the world, we are just, we, we have most, a lot of people have, have access to meat more than they did. But nevertheless, Paul is saying he is willing to set aside this right which he would have enjoyed, which would have been a huge earthly blessing. And he's saying, I'm willing to set never, if, I will never eat meat if, in fact, it causes my brother to stumble. He's willing to set aside this good, God-given gift that he would have enjoyed, that would have been a huge earthly blessing out of deference to his brother's conscience. So that should be a huge exhortation to us who are, who are unwilling at times even to set aside the smallest things uh, out of uh, so-called inconvenience. Here his point is, let love compel you to say, I'm willing to set aside any right for the sake of uh, loving my brethren. And that's what he, now we can turn back over to Romans 14. He says, uh, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness in terms of our right standing with God and our uh, right conduct among others, peace among the, the, the body, and I think the joy that flows out of that. I don't think you have true joy as a strong person on a particular issue, wielding your rights uh, uh, with no concern for your brothers and sisters. That won't bring true spiritual joy. What brings joy is righteousness and peace 
harmony among your brothers and sisters that you've labored to maintain, and out of that flows joy, that love that really concerns, concerns oneself about the, the spiritual welfare of other brothers, brothers and sisters, that leads to peace and that will lead to joy. Uh, question. Did you have a question, Paige? Um, the wording of that very last statement, I will never eat meat, mm -hmm. is that like, it sounds like it's stating like, never, I'm just going to remove that completely from, from my life because of my love for my brother. Um, and that, is that... No, he's not saying that. He's not saying that... Um, I'm just going to stop doing it because it potentially could offend a few people here and there. What he's saying is if, in, in, in any case, uh, if, if there's a situation where I could offend my brother by eating meat, I won't do it. I'd be willing to, to give it up. If every situation I come across is going to offend, then I, I'm willing to give it up. But he's not saying that he's just going to give it up wholesale because... It could, potentially, it could potentially happen out there. No, that's not what he's saying. I believe uh, Paul continued to, to eat meat, but he wouldn't in situations where it would offend a, a brother. So he's not advocating uh, vegetarianism as the more uh, plausible and spiritual route for believers. Yeah. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, verse 13. So uh, Paul, we have to remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. This is a local church. So he's writing to members of a local church. And so the brothers he's talking about are the members of that local congregation. So it's not talking uh, by, about, 
I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, this, this, is, this is difficult. I don't think this is really, there's not easy answers here. But your knowledge of an interaction with other believers with whom you, you are confident of their faith and, and so on will be primarily the members of, I mean, this is a great argument actually for local church membership, right? Because you are going to be interacting with people, you, you have very, a high confidence about their, their profession of faith. And they're going to be in a situation where hopefully their conscience is being regularly trained by the Word of God. And so that you're not going to have to be uh, assuming, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure if, if Michael's a believer, but I know his, his sister is, and, and things like that. Um, or, yeah. um, because we both know they, we know that they both are, because you interact with both of them, and it's, and it's there's, there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a credible uh, profession uh, of faith, and there's, there's fruit in their life, right? So that's far different than saying going to a dinner with you and your roommates and several other people who profess to be Christ, but you've, you've never met them before, you don't know their background, you don't know their profession, you don't know their membership, you don't know what they believe. And so we have to keep in mind that the context of this is the local church. This letter is written to a local church. Um, and so in as much as you are engaging with, with uh, people that you have uh, confidence of their profession of, of faith, and that can obviously happen outside the local church context, because you may know some Christians better than others, but uh, Paul is referring here to the local church, and that's important to keep in mind. And so that's where this needs to, to apply, that we are, we are caring for one another's consciences, while at the same time not forcing them, but also trying to get them to uh, see in Scripture where their, their conscience can be uh, liberated and, and so on. So... Yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah, there is, there is a confidence. That's, that's the kind of what's troubling about that passage, right? Because there is a confidence there, and I think that's why he's, he's talking to this Corinthian church. They're a mess, but he, first chapter, he's saying that they're believers. <laughs> so he's assuming they are, and uh, that's the way he's writing to them. And so listen, Corinthian church, brothers and sisters, don't uh, treat or care for one another's conscience in such a way that you don't destroy this one for whom Christ has died. You have confidence that Christ has died for this person. So, Yes, David. I was going to say, and it also seems like the context, the eating meat in their time was so much different than eating meat in our time. Yeah. Like drawing a parallel would be like drinking alcohol in front of a, a, a brother in Christ who was an alcoholic for 20 years. Yeah. Like that would be very unwise and just foolish. Sure. Right, right. We, we don't have, for the most part, we don't have restaurant situations where there is, we're getting food that's being served to us from an idle sacrifice, uh, sacrifice right? Yeah, it um, seems like if somebody was eating meat, like, they would know that it would be, like, really damaging to the person. Right. Have to, like, think about it hard. Like, right. Like, oh, if I do this, it's okay, but it would harm them. Right. Exactly. Yeah, Chilon. Predominantly, yeah. Predominantly. So looking at uh, Romans 14, 15, mm -hmm. it says, uh, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Mm -hmm. You must destroy the food with him for whom Christ 
language though. It's a simple yeah. language. Yeah. 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 Sounds like uh, the second half of that verse is explaining. Don't do what what he said in the first half, right? So in the first half he said, "Your brother is hurt. You know, doesn't mm-hmm. have to carry that eternal damnation." I think it's an easier reading to say destroy. It doesn't mean eternally destroy. Eternally condemn someone, right? If uh, he already explained to you, you know, your brother could be hurt by what you do. But yeah. So. I think what you're saying is verse 15 or verse 16 or the latter part of verse 15 is explaining what he means by grieve so that grieved and right. destroy are syn- almost synonymous. Yeah, I think it's an easier reading to do it that way than saying, oh, Christ died. So I mean, those are, well, he's not sure who is a true believer, but he takes, it, takes them at their word and then try to force the eternal damnation back into this role. Yeah, I mean, that's why I say that's a possible reading. But if you, if, yeah, so that, that, uh, that's why I qualify and say it's a possible reading. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's an easier reading. Like, well, it's certainly an easier one. Okay. Certainly an easier one. I admit that. Um, but that word uh, for destroy here, it's, it's um, if you just trace it throughout the New Testament, it predominantly means. Well, it does. Yeah, it certainly does. But I think if, if a word's being predominantly used one particular way, you have to give good reason why it's being used a different way, in a lesser way, here. And your, your argument is that it's parallel with grieved. Yeah. So then the question is, is, is grieved uh, qualified by destroyed, or is destroyed qualified by grieved? So, so that's why I say it's a possible interpretation. And so, so you, you, the, you guys walking out of here, it's, to keep this in mind, it, whatever we can know at the very least, it causes severe damage, and now love compels us to not want to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, David. So, uh, James mentioned how some, some can like, essentially weaponize this to say, like, oh, if you are offended by this, you're weak. Mm-hmm. And the response is just to say, well, that's not loving, period. How would you um, respond to people who weaponize it on the other extreme and say, like, oh, like, um, in my past, Yeah, and it does. Um, uh, I've said this. Uh, I said this. Uh, it simply it takes in in many cases. It simply just takes wisdom to know whether or not you have. In fact, I think. Do I go on in this section here? Um, yes, actually, I do. Um, you it here here's here's I actually come back and repeat this same thing. So here this is to kind of this actually segues into the next section. Um, I'm quoting from Nacelli and Crowley. We had a generous donor, so you guys all get that book for free. It's coming. So how about that? Um, so you'll you'll get it soon. It's a great book. You'll be able to sit down and read it, and I think really benefit from it. Very practical. He says, "quote We need God's wisdom to discern the difference between one weak and wavering believers for whom we must flex." And two, this is the second group, controlling Christians who want to force their scruples on everyone else. Why? So that you, like Paul, can preserve the truth of the gospel for the next generation. The gospel is preserved in two ways. One, we must be willing to bend and flex for the weak believers in order to preserve the gospel. The gospel frees us from selfishness and produces a genuine love for our brethren. So if we're unwilling to flex, that shows a deficiency in what we believe about the gospel, right? It shows... I'm the center of the universe, right? 
So that, that, that um, undermines the gospel. But secondly, we must be unwilling, to, we must be unwilling, okay? So this is why it takes wisdom, right? The, this is why we are also dependent on the Spirit. We must be unwilling to bend and flex for the controlling legalists in order to preserve the gospel. Uh, the gospel says that we are commended to God by Christ alone and our faith alone in Him. If, uh, are they trying to make one's position on a disputable matter an issue of salvation or of superior spirituality? Then they are guilty of Galatians 1, uh, 8-9, adding to the work of Christ. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, are they saying that avoidance of that which God has given to enjoy is actually more pleasing to God than actually partaking in such things, or avoiding such things is more pleasing to God than actually partaking in such things? And then that context... 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, the, the two things that God has given was marriage and food. So we have to be unwilling to flex. And I just, in that, those cases, we need discernment. And I think to answer your question, it just, it takes wisdom. It takes wisdom. And um, in the case of wearing blue shirts, one thing that we'd said earlier is we're not talking about things that merely irritate a fellow believer. Okay, we're talking about things that set a stumbling block before them that lead them to sin. That's what we're talking about. So we have to be very clear about, about what we're talking about. And um, so, in that case, you, I, I, unless I mean, I don't see how they're being caused to sin by your wearing of blue. Um, so I, that's why I would say you shouldn't feel compelled to to yield to that so-called scruple, but it does take wisdom. People saying, hey, I'm having a birthday party and I love blue, so everyone who comes has to wear blue. Yeah, then, there you go. That person is like, oh, well, I guess I have to go against my conscience to wear blue. And you would be willing to flex and say, you know, okay, you don't have to wear blue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because the kingdom of God is not wearing blue. Okay, go ahead. Right. Right. So it's more of like that gospel evangelical goal mindset. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, in Paul's mind, he's doing everything he can to build up the church and win converts. And if that means removing unnecessary offenses, then he's going to do it. Um, so long as it doesn't compromise the gospel. One thing I did bring up that I, I'll answer here and will be done is, was Paul saying it was okay to eat in an idol's temple? Some take that position. Be like, the, the strong were okay. They, they was okay what they were doing. If you go on in chapter 10, I think Paul makes the argument that, that no, they should not have been in there. Their knowledge, because it wasn't coupled with love, uh, was leading them to make some foolish decisions. They should not have been in that idol's temple to begin with because... Though an idol is nothing, nevertheless, you know what's behind that idol? A demon. That's right. And so Paul says that you are, by doing that, you're actually partaking, having participation, communion with demons. So he's not advocating the going to idols' temples, which some have taken this to be the case. Yeah, you're strong. You, can, you guys can go to strip clubs. I mean, if, that doesn't, if you can go in there without it causing you spiritual harm, that's, that's fine. 
You know, that's the kind of the, you, you go into these kind of nefarious kinds of situations because, you know, you're strong and, and that's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul's saying they shouldn't have been there. You're, you're having uh, communion with, with demons by doing that and um, therefore your knowledge has clearly led you in a, in a wrong direction because it wasn't coupled with love. So, well, great questions. We will finish this up next week. Next week, this will be fun. Uh, I have, I'm creating these... Um, Biblical principle, application for Joe, application for Jim, and we'll like do them on the board, and we'll look at, uh, we're going to answer James' question about like, can wisdom be used in a way that actually causes people to violate their conscience or be wielded in a way that makes people feel spiritually superior, and we'll talk about how people apply different biblical principles differently, and I think that'll be a lot of fun. So that's how we'll close out this series, okay? Let us pray and you can go. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom in all the complexity of our uh, life with one another, and yet you've given us a basic principle of love. Help us to walk in love towards one another, love and deference and humility. We thank you for the local church that we can really get to know each other, and we can grow uh, together. And a lot of these things are smoothed out by being members of one another. So help us to walk in love. Help us to apply these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.